episode of Nickel City Soundtrack Podcast. In this, we interviewed Scott Sprigg. If you know Scott, he's been in bands such as Union, Buried Alive, Holy Angels. He moved out to California for a little while, and he did some bands out there as well. We talked to Scott about, you know, getting into hardcore, doing shows around here, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, this is our last episode of the year, so... We wish everyone a happy holidays and a happy new year. We will see you on the next one, which will be our top releases of the year. See you then. Welcome to the last Nickel City Soundtrack Podcast of Ever. 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest tonight is Scott Sprigg of uh, various hardcore endeavors. Say hi, Scott. <laughs> Hello. Run down, run down those endeavors. Because I feel like I'm missing one or two. Um, let's see. I started going to shows and just punk hardcore kid i think my first endeavor if it counts is a roadie with snapcase that's kind of how i started getting outside of buffalo and deeper into the core um actually no before that it's like 15 or 16 getting brought up on stage at river rock the thing with face value and integrity i just lived for cleveland hardcore back in the day and uh so that was like like my first time like getting more like involved with like band stuff. I did a zine back at that time called Back Off with my good friend from high school, Matt Dorr. So that would have been like 92-ish. Uh, definitely River Rock days. But yeah, then I moved out on my own right after graduating high school with Colin Szymanski. Some really good stories there. And roadie with, <laughs> with Snapcase. Um, you know, I went on a road trip when Gallus was still singing uh, on a weekend. That was fun, but then did like full-fledged tours after, uh, you know, after Dale, after Daryl took over on vocals. And uh, shortly after that, joined Union. It was my first band. Uh, shortly before that, I was booking shows. So I made some contacts being roadie with Snapcase and other guys just looking to book their band in Buffalo. So I just kind of got associated with a lot of bands by roading with Snapcase and started booking shows in Buffalo for a few years. And then after playing in Union and Union breaking up, uh, made an attempt at a band with Vogel at that time, which didn't work out. And then we ended up doing Buried Alive. Uh, we can talk about how that all came together. But Buried Alive is definitely my most well-known band that I ever played in. Only my second band that I ever played in. After that, did a band called Holy Angels with uh, Mark Bricky, Joel Sanicheski, Chris Bame. Uh, after that, broke up and I moved to California. In California, I played, joined the band Stand and Fight. Uh, so I was on for the last album was we wrote that and recorded that for Bridge Nine. I uh, wasn't on the first EP. After that, I played in a band called Force of Change, an album on Indecision. Um, I joined just after that was recorded, so I'm not on that, but played all the shows for that. 
to call it quits, uh, quit just before the band officially called it quits. Um, but then after that, I joined a band called The Dear and Departed. I did uh, last album on Equal Vision, or I should say I joined for the last album on Equal Vision. Uh, so that was great. I loved playing in that band, had a lot of fun. Uh, the last tour we ever did was an amazing tour with Alkaline Trio in the UK for a month. So that was super amazing. And then after that, thought I was done with music. Uh, actually, I had a band in between then as well with the singer or guitar player, rather, of uh, This Day Forward. He also sang for another band. I forget what they were called. But yeah, Fadim from This Day Forward, who also plays in Poison the Well now. He's like my best friend in California. Um, we tried a band for a while, just that classic. Couldn't get a singer nailed down. Um, so we called ourselves Iodine C. We played one show. We played with the Jealous Sound, which was great. They had an off day on their Sunday Day real estate tour. So they played this amazing sold out show with Sunday Day. And then the very next day, they played with us with like 30 people there. <laughs> so it was a huge difference. But uh, for the most part, that's about it for my musical endeavors. Now, just, you know, playing some shows with Buried Alive and Know, writing new tunes and just doing some stuff there on the side so that's been a lot of fun it's great to revisit that as you know a 40 year old so how did um i mean i didn't think buried alive would ever get back together how did that like kind of come together yeah, that was pretty crazy i mean i never thought we'd get back together as well i mean with scott living in California and myself living in California, we would see each other all the time. So we would always bump into each other at shows and connect periodically. So he and I were always in contact, uh, contact with Jesse occasionally when I come back to Buffalo, it's kind of hard to have regular contact with Jesse nowadays because he's Jesse Moscato. Um, <laughs> but, you know, occasionally we would talk or I would try to connect with Matt and Joe I remember when everything happened with uh, the terror lawsuit over at Mohawk. I uh, threw out the possibility of doing a reunion show then. And uh, just kind of having that to benefit the band. It felt like if we were to ever get together, that seemed like a good time to do it. I was living in California at the time, but coming back periodically, I think that was around the time that I was laid off from my job. I think we were at the start of a recession around that point. So, I was collecting unemployment as well as getting some money from my job for being there for like five years. I work in HR, so I got a nicer compensation package when I got laid off. So I was coming back to Buffalo like every three months or so. Um, but Matt and Joe weren't speaking at that time. I'm not sure what their issue was, but there was some weirdness between their old band, uh, Call and Quits. So that just, no, cards didn't work out right. Timing didn't work out right. And uh, so nothing ever happened there. But, um, you know, Scott got everyone back together a few years later. And, you know, being older and more mature, um, you know, Terror played in Buffalo. And then everyone just got together and hung out. Talked about maybe doing some stuff. Matt had some ideas and. You know, just kind of reassured that be very part-time. Joe is very involved with his restaurant. Uh, at that time, I think he might have started 03 on Main Street. 
um, I think it was just hard for those guys to think of doing a band part-time as opposed to just doing it full throttle, full-time, like have to practice three days a week. Um, especially Joe, he's very involved with whatever he does. And that's an amazing trait to have. Um, but myself just having a real career, obviously Tara being full-time for Scott and Matt working full-time. I think once we got to green that we can do something part-time that allowed us to get the green light. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was a little surprised that a, the buried alive got back together because like the way buried alive kind of ended and the things that were said in that ending. And then, um, you know, so I was like surprised that it came back together, but I was even more surprised that it went beyond this is hardcore when it did come back together. And now like I'm borderline shocked that it's pretty much like an active band. Yeah, actually. And that being said, that was definitely a cognizant effort on Matt and Joe. You know, they definitely get the involvement out of writing music. And they're two of the best musicians I've ever played with. That being said, Jesse's definitely the best drummer I've ever played with. But for me, that was only my second band I'd ever played in. So outside of playing in Union, you know, I didn't know too much about music. And the funny thing is, those guys hadn't done anything like, you know, super special either. I mean, obviously they were in Hourglass and Next to Nothing, but I learned so much from playing with those guys that, you know, getting the opportunity to play with them is great. You know, I basically started playing guitar myself just because I'm just a hardcore kid who just freaking loves music, you know? So like you get better by surrounding yourself with better people. You obviously take in from everything around you. So like, to be able to revisit that as a more skilled musician in my 40s, I mean, it was just so great because I learned so much from them when I was younger and I didn't realize it until later on, you know, when I did Holding Angels afterwards. Like, it was super helpful to think of, like, how Joe would be with, like, song structure. And Matt's just an amazing riff writer as well. So those guys definitely wanted to keep it, you know, active as far as, like, writing music and not just sitting back on the back catalog and just playing old tunes. So were they were were they gonna do the band or were you guys gonna do the band with like Busky and Martin or was that just a temporary thing? Uh, kind of a temporary thing. I mean, once again, with with Joe being focused on his restaurant, and you know he had a second child by that point. You know, just obviously having bigger priorities, mm-hmm. and just the way that we did the band in the past. I think it's kind of hard to. In my opinion, I think it made it a bit hard to look at Buried Alive as doing music part-time as opposed to the way you've always done it, which is full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, which, ironically, not to go on a side rail, that band that I talked about starting in California with Vadim Tabor from This Day Forward, the craziest thing, as we were looking for a singer, we put out a Craigslist ad, and of all people, the person who responds to the Craigslist ad is John Bunch from Sensefield. Whoa. <laughs> so it's just, it sounds too good to be true when the singer of Sensefield responds to a Craigslist classified. <laughs> says, hey, I listened to your tunes. Like, I like you. This sounds really cool. And then we get together and John kind of recognizes me because I had met him when when he came through on the first tour and Glenn booked him at Icon and, you know, occasionally would 
talk on tour and that being said he's like hey you guys have been in real bands i'm afraid you're gonna want to do like something more than i'm willing to commit to and you know even then that was like someone saying hey i've been in real bands it's kind of hard to focus on a band and think of it as being something part-time so i think that was the same thing for joe you know it's just like these people who've been in full active bands touring you know a good chunk of the year and spending a lot of time writing and practicing three times a week you know to revisit that in your 40s on a part-time basis i think was a little bit of an adjustment but i think it works really well for everyone i think we have a good thing in place you know we'll practice like once a week and then after just playing a handful of shows like you know probably won't get together for a few more weeks but uh you know look to do something perhaps a weekend of shows every like three to four months I think it's really smart to keep it where people always want more and you don't wear out your welcome. You know, it's, it's really easy to go back and, you know, uh, to just keep going back, going out and playing a bunch of shows and kind of overdo it a little bit when bands come back, you know, not to Derek, you can cut out the part where I talk about that being a reference to judge. Uh, I was, about, I was just about to say, it's better to be gorilla biscuits than judge in this situation. And you don't have to cut that out. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I mean, if Judge played here, you gotta be down. <laughs> Yo, I'm mean, like, not to go on like a total sidebar <laughs> tangent, but it's gotta be five-piece Judge, not four-piece Judge. Because four-piece Judge, you're gonna be let down, but five-piece Judge always brings it. All right. Alrighty, then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. To me, it's hard to get let down by Judge. Right, I mean, Dude, like you, when you see four piece judge and Porcel is doing this more than actually playing, <laughs> like, you know it's it's not the same. Porcel's the yeah. show, man. I've seen them <laughs> way more times than you I can ever have, You can I have would. a YouTube channel and be the show. Like I'm there to see Judge, yeah. not Porcel and the judges. <laughs> I've seen them way more times than I ever thought that I would, and like it's just. I mean, the first time I saw them, I like my whole body was tingling when they when they hit the first note. I was just like, my head was ready to explode. So, but, uh, is, is, is Barry Alive going to be writing new music then? Yep. Yeah, we've got uh, got a few few ideas, few riffs. Um, actually, got a couple new songs. I mean, you guys know we did Seven Inch, and then uh, sorry, those two new songs. One of those was originally intro. And, um, you know, it wasn't planned to be a seven inch originally, it was just planned to be recording just so that we had a document of those songs, because at that time, uh, there was really no plan to continue as a band. At that point, Joe and Matt had expressed interest in not playing. So I uh, just went in to record those tunes and then Scott put lyrics to what was an intro at that time. And, uh, so that's, that was kind of fun. And then practicing for these last weekend of dates, you know, wrote a brand new intro and really like those riffs a lot. So hoping that becomes a full-fledged song. Uh, and then we have two other songs that are like ones I would consider finished and then another one, which is a good shell of a song. So if we How could did... do like a seven inch, like once every year, year and a half or so, like that'd be great. You'd go out and, you know, record some tunes and play an occasional weekend of dates. You know, that would be fun for us. How did that happen where that ended up 
with Bridge Nine. Was it your connection with Stan and Fight? No, I would I would definitely say it's more Scott's doing. I mean, obviously, Terror has a connection with with Bridge Nine. Um, you know, Scott being Scott Vogel and having you know just the deepest roots in hardcore. You know, obviously, a lot of people contact Scott on a regular basis and. I can't confirm how the details came up, but, you know, originally talked about maybe doing something with Triple B again, like when they did the demo 7-inch. That was super cool for us to get that to come out and just to have someone who would be willing to do that. They just want to work with bands or rather like labels that just, you know, care about the bands and just, you know, really based in hardcore. So, you know, obviously that's Bridge Nine as well and you know, I had great experience when I was on Bridge Nine with Stand and Fight. You know, I thought they did a good job with our album and stuff like that. And obviously they're a big label and can get stuff out. So, you know, if we did something on them in the future, that would be great. But who knows what could happen? You know, maybe we'd do something on a smaller label or, you know, other labels as well. So who knows? Very cool. The cool thing about that, that last seven, so it wasn't like a, a drop off in quality, you know, sometimes bands get back together and it's like a different band. And, uh, I think you guys did a really good job with that. Yeah, definitely stoked on that. It was great to, you know, get those old songs from the reach of the sky split back out there. And like, like that remaster, I think sounds a lot better. You know, another day closer to death was actually one of my favorite bare live songs. <laughs> so that was a song about like one of Scott's co-workers who passed or at least, you know, partially about that. So I always thought that was super cool. And like one of my favorite songs to play and, you know, Matt and I tease that riff sometimes at practice. And I would love to get that song worked into the the set list someday, but who knows? (laughs) Let us know what uh, the songs you guys think should be in the set list. (laughs) I, I'm just, just going to say, uh, jumping back just a little bit, that the art of the intro is dead. And if you guys have a solid intro, you should just leave it as an intro and not make it into a song. And maybe like that'll spearhead bands doing intros again. Like, I personally, I miss intros. I miss like uh, that opening thing that's not on a record that a band just plays live. Like I miss those days. Because you're old, Chris. Because you're old. <laughs> <laughs> that may but be. then you put on but then you put on turmoil the process of and you're like holy shit that was like an instrumental track on the anchor and now it's a full-fledged song and it's fucking amazing because that record's fucking insanely good there you go Fair. tell me that's the exception to your rule <laughs> uh i will have to revisit both because i haven't listened to turmoil in about 20 years but i i, I will say fair yeah it's okay man we all have faults we all do. <laughs> so um let's talk about let, let's let's talk about um let's talk about you booking shows back in the mid nineties. How why did you kind of start booking shows back then? Uh, the funny thing is I tried booking shows about five years beforehand i actually had a show booked and i had flyers printed and and sent out chris and um i don't think you were 
in Buffalo at that time, Mark, but uh, Chris, maybe you'll remember during the scrapyard days, I was going to be at the scrapyard. I tried booking Vision, or I should say I had the show booked. It was going to be Vision headlining, Worlds Collide, because I just absolutely love Worlds Collide and still to this day love Worlds Collide. Uh, it was pre-Earth Crisis. I can't remember which of the two bands that were pre-Earth Crisis. I know that they were like very short period. Yeah, it was, was going to be Framework. The other one, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was Framework, because it was definitely Shane Durgy singing. And uh, so I was going to have them play, I think, support open. But really, it was just wanting to bring Worlds Collide to town. And I, I love Vision, and Vision used to play Buffalo all the time. You know, all Blink of an Eye was such a, such a great record. Yeah. And I don't even know how I got in touch with Vision, but it was really just me trying to get Worlds Collide to come to Buffalo. I had the demo from a friend of mine when I did a scene, we would just change, exchange demo tapes. And I got that demo. I was like, man, this is so good. And then like a month later, Voice of the Voiceless came out and then Effect of the Age is like the best song in like five years of hardcore. So I booked <laughs> I, that I've show. Never heard anyone, show got... I said, I never heard anyone talk so passionately about uh, that band. Yeah, Worlds Collide outside of yeah. DC. Yeah, I've never heard that. Yeah. But I do like Worlds Clyde quite a bit. It's just, it's just, it's just funny to hear because I never heard anyone speak like that about him. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. I might have even had a Worlds Clyde quote in my senior yearbook. Now that I think awesome. about it. <laughs> That's awesome. The truth is absolute. <laughs> oh. So, but anyways, so I booked that show. And then I got canceled because Godflesh got offered to play the scrapyard that day. So obviously the owner made the right choice and booted <laughs> me for Godflesh. So that would have been my first attempt at shows. And uh, I can't remember what my first show was when I started like really booking shows, but uh, I just started booking shows, Showplace Theater. And uh, like I work with Snapcase, I'm booking some of their shows there. So they've always had a really close connection with any of their shows that they would book. So I think the first show that I booked with Snapcase was the one where Chamberlain played. And then they were really concerned that people wouldn't come because they changed their name. So like, I know Daryl was like, you got to put Spootlip on the flyer. <laughs> I think I the show is going to do pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I thought that mattered. <laughs> wasn't it on, the, wasn't it on the, the billboard out front saying from Lee split lipper or something like that yeah yeah i share that because i mean the staff case guys are just super close to your friends and you know going <laughs> to high school i didn't go to high school but i skipped my high school to go to high school with bob whiteside and john slimmy a few times throughout the year it was a lot of fun um, but yeah i mean just sometimes they were just like so i don't want to say naive but just like not understanding that their band was as big as they were i mean they definitely knew that they were popular and obviously they wanted to do the most with their band i definitely respect that but it was just funny that they were that made me as many people wouldn't come if we didn't put split lip on the flyer versus <laughs> it's good though it's, it's humble but, uh, i like it i like it <laughs> that was definitely cool. one of my favorite shows i thought that was a great bill as well with the spare playing so that was great. That's when I like was really getting into spare. I mean, I knew them and like 
I just was just really starting to get into despair. I, I felt that was one of Scott's bands that just got better with time. So that was a great show. And that flyer was just like a great flyer to make because I was doing graphic design at ECC at the time. Yeah. And I had a printing class and I got to do like printing for free. So those two color flyers, like on like really nice paper, I got to print for free, which was nice. That was the dual flyer that had the dead guy bloodlet show on it as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. I Just think pictures uh, from that show. If you can see your screen. Yeah. I could have come up with a better tagline in hindsight. I think it was two shows to kick your ass. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Someone's probably got that somewhere. That's probably on on a on an Instagram feed somewhere. I think I shirts. have one upstairs. I think yeah. I have it upstairs. Yeah. All Booking those shows there. Those are like some of my shows. Those show place ones that you that you did particularly, like the Lifetime show. That was a great one. Where Damnation didn't play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been a great tour. A little bit bummed out that they didn't play. Uh, let's see. Uh, had a share of stinkers as well. I know the 108 show there was not that fun, and I'll always remember the hello, my name, my hello, my name is Fanzine with a picture of, I think it might have been a picture of Gerald, just saying this is how much fun the 108 show was. <laughs> and it was like somebody was sitting in the pit because no one was there at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like bar stools. <laughs> yeah, I think they finally showed up around like eleven o'clock or so at night. And I remember Dan Paradise from Threadbare was playing drums. And I swear to this day, I think that the drummer intentionally broke his snare just so they could end their set. <laughs> <laughs> sounds about right. Who else played that show? I don't remember, other than 108. Didn't Prima play? I don't know. Did Prima play? I don't know. I thought they, for some reason, I thought they played. No idea. I don't know. That's so long ago. Yes, it was a long time ago. I know. Jewel Garland did all my flyers. I wish I had a computer back in the day to, like, look for, for those flyers to, like, get a tally back of all the shows that I had done. I love the shows that I did over at the... Um, the main transit fire hall. I remember yeah. doing damnation there on a Father's Day. And I learned the hard way that booking a hardcore show on Father's Day is not that good because <laughs> a lot of people won't come out on Father's Day. Uh, one of the, maybe the only show I lost money on. And the crazy thing is, I'm a frugal person and I can't believe I can admit to this. I didn't care that I lost money on it because to me, it was still a good time, good show. I love Dan Nation. I mean, I just love Ken Olden bands in general. I think he's a great guitar player. And, mm -hmm. you know, post Worlds, there's no Worlds Collide, of course, but still, pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, speaking of Damnation, speaking of Damnation, what would you rank as the best Damnation record and the worst Damnation record? There are no worst <laughs> Damnation records, all right? <laughs> Not as best as the If best. I had to go my least favorite i actually think they got better with time uh and the recording doesn't help but um no more dreams is one of my least favorites 
It's not necessarily because it's bad, but I just think the other records are even better and sound better, definitely. I mean, the Misericordia 12 inches, or I think the 10 inch, but that EP is when I really started to get into them. Because mm-hmm. I didn't like the first album that much. But the song on a pale horse is actually my favorite damnation song. Great that song. It's just so, so heavy. Such a great song. Yeah. And if you remember, there was an old fanzine called Extent that John put together. And it was supposed to have a different song from that seven inch on it. But the shit got messed up. So the CD that comes with it actually has on a pale horse. And back at that time, like, all I cared about was music on CD. So when I found that out, I was like, oh, shit, that song's so good. Mike DC's voice is just absolutely insane. Yes. Definitely a, a better front man than Worlds Collide, but I do prefer Worlds Collide. <laughs> but I like Matt. I, I, prefer, I prefer Mike DC as a front man, though. He's just, like, one of the nicest guys of all time, and he just sounds so hard. But that Rev album is so good. Kingdom Agreed. of Souls is so yeah. good. It's a good record. Love it. Do you like the Victory album? I like that. I do. Yeah, I do. I too. do. I like, I love the two song seven inch that they put out first, though. Oh my gosh. The Mortal songs are so good. The Mortal's yeah, so good. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I've heard that one. Oh, Jesus. Listen to The Mortal on that seven inch. Uh, so good. What, what label did it come out on? Victory, I think. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Was yeah. it part of their like singles club or did I just miss it? I think it singles was. Club. Yeah. 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 You can get it on you can get it on CD or I assume it's online as well. Who buys CDs? Come on. We're not Mike Jeffries yeah. here. <laughs> Dude, I I have like two thousand CDs like downstairs. I don't know where I'm going to put them. But if you have them. I remember when you lived on uh, Richmond, I went to your guys' house. And your freaking room, the freaking wall of CDs was freaking ridiculous. Like, that was, like, craziness. <laughs> I still have it. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, I would much rather listen to a CD than a vinyl record at any point. Whoa. Just... Yeah, that's a bold talk. Go... Like, I'll let you slide on No More Dreams is the worst <laughs> damnation record. But this, like, this is, this is a hot take that may not be acceptable. <laughs> Yeah, I do, I can just listen to a song over and over again. So, and it's nicer for your skippers to just like press the fast forward sense. button versus having to get up. Yeah, but the whole like, format is completely obsolete now with streaming because like you don't you you can still have your skippers and your repeats and everything. Well, that's true. Totally. CDs are making a comeback because uh 17-year-olds' first cars are all 15 to 20 years old and have CD players on them. And computers don't have optical drives anymore to burn your own. So CDs are making a comeback. We're going to cut this out. We're cutting this CD talk out. We're not cutting shit out anymore. (laughs) Jeffers is on to something. He's he's the hero we need, not the hero we want. (laughs) Jeffers, Jeffers was giving me shit 20 years ago. Like, you know, these fucking records are just like, they're just some bullshit fad right like they're this is not a thing that's going to keep going and he's snapping up every cd that exists and now he's just gonna put all three of his kids through college selling off his eighteen thousand cd collection jeffers is a prophet you should listen heed his word stop let's get back to spring talk stop the jeffers talk (laughs) how did you end up in union sorry how did you end up in union 
way uh, back when. Before I mention that, I just I just got to talk about how just such a confused hardcore kid I was with being able to get all those records on CD, but getting through Lost and Found, like, you know, like, oh. which way do I go? <laughs> I, I need Chuck King to suck it. I need Chuck Kink and Suck It on CD, but I can only get it through Lost and Found. Or, or Mike Warden, Mike Warden bootlegging things and putting the In Effect video on CD or putting <laughs> the Against that the Wall 7-inch so cool. on that compilation CD with, with the Reason to Believe 7-inch. Like, those people were my heroes. Speaking of that, oh. I just discovered today that Live in a World Full of Hate on Lost and Found is on Apple Music. Ooh. That's oh, craziness. Right. They did have a handful of legitimate releases. <laughs> yeah. And then just a whole bunch of bootlegs. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I feel it's like, really like yeah. I feel like a lot of the live stuff was actually legitimate releases. Like the live stuff, the Ignite records, mm-hmm. and like two other things. Several European bands did legitimate mm-hmm. releases with them too. Yeah. Battery, I think, had a, a reasonably legitimate release with them. Mm-hmm. 108 as well. I remember talking with 108, yep. how basically they said yep. that they just took money up front, saying, we know that we'll never get anything. We can't trust them. So we just took up front money for the 108 releases. And sure enough, there's that 108 live record, Curse of Instinct. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wasn't Threefold on there too? I'm yeah. Not sure. So yeah. 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 I think maybe one of the one of the most like heartfelt hardcore related laughs I've had in the last decade was when I learned of Andrew Klein's Lost and Found Bootleg Company. Are you are you familiar? His like pins and all that stuff. He he yeah. does a company called Lost and Found Bootleg Company, which is just the Lost and Found logo that he stole, and <laughs> uh, he just he was just doing all these like bootleg pins and stuff. That uh, yeah, the first time I saw that man, who got me good. Interesting. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, not... back to Union. Back to you joining yeah, so how, Union. Yeah, how did you end up in a band of uh, of, of carpetbaggers? <laughs> <laughs> how did you end up in the New York hardcore band Union out of Buffalo? <laughs> <laughs> I just remember no offense, going Mike to see those guys. No <laughs> oh. I owe so much to those guys. I mean, like I was saying before, you know, like you learn from the people that you're surrounded with. And, you know, at that point I was playing guitar and I actually made a attempt at a band before that. My first attempt at a band was with Tim Turcotte on drums. This was after uh, Copper was on a, hiatus megan had moved to new york city and uh tim turcott's close friend of mine that i've known since back in high school and river rock skateboarding days so i start we tried to start a band together and chris gallus was going to be on bass and a friend of his that i I met through chris uh ivan gonzalez who is uh, friends with the google dolls guys and Artie quitchoff Uh, we practice at his place and uh, I think he lived on Breckenridge or somewhere in the Elmwood area. And that was our first attempt at a band. And we had like two songs together. And it's kind of more in like the Sam I Am vein, like Sam I Am, maybe a little more punk, like, but yeah, definitely like Sam I Am-ish type stuff. And that just didn't work out. 
uh, Chris Gales didn't really play bass and figured I could teach him. So I, you know, would try and show him and I'm like, man, I've never been in a band before in my life and I'm teaching someone else how to play an instrument. This should be the way a band works out. <laughs> and the other guitar player wasn't that good. And I was like, man, if this is my first band and I'm the better guitar player here, this is definitely not going to work out well. You have a singer in that band? No singer. Okay. Yeah, we never even got that far. We had like we had like two songs. Mm-hmm. And that just never worked out. But uh, But yeah, that was my first attempt at a band. And then about six months or a year later I was like okay I really want to be in a band I got this you know I got this crate amp and this Jackson 412 cabinet in my basement that just really needs to get used with my Yamaha guitar it's just like just got this great gear that needs to get used ASAP and uh, I remember seeing Union play at the uh, UB coffee shop and they would do stuff over at um, Black Box Theater yeah and uh I was good friends with Mike just from hanging out with like Ed from strange days. That's how I became friends with Mike. And you now he was talking very hardcore and I was just like, Oh, funny. Cause like I'm a super hardcore kid. And like, I usually would talk about more like post hardcore stuff with Ed and stuff. And, you know, at that point it was like, you know, like network sound records and like you saw Sunday day real estate and, Sam I Am was my favorite band and we were seeing Sam I Am shows together. So that when I saw his hardcore band play, oh, this is pretty good. And then when I saw him again, like a couple months later, Black Box Theater, I was like, oh, you guys are like pretty good. I think I'm good enough to play in a band and just approach them about playing second guitar. And they were all on board and Vic kind of took me under his wing. I learned how to play you know, drop D guitar. I had no idea about playing in a different tuning or any other tuning other than straight E. So I was like, oh, I can do this. This is this is super easy, actually. Like this is actually easier than playing guitar. This is cheater guitar. I can definitely play songs with drop D. And uh, so I picked that up and then after a few months started writing some tunes as well. And uh, you know that was when we went and did recording. So our first recording we did was with Brian McTurnan over at Salad Days. I knew Brian just from booking his band and I knew met, first met him with Ashes and uh, like booked battery and stuff. So uh, we booked at Salad Days for 150 bucks a day, went down, did five songs. That was my first time ever recording. So uh, I was a little sketchy at first, but uh, you know, we got everything recorded and done in one day. Um, so really it was just knowing those guys from being around like certain scenes and shows and just that's how you became friends with everyone. And then just after seeing their band play, they were dumb enough to let me join. <laughs> Fair enough. We probably talked about this stuff on the Union episode, but um, so Union broke up and then what was after that? Yay. Um after that was buried alive so Mm -hmm. the funny thing is i attempted to start a band that sounded like outspoken afterwards that was like my goal after union broke up was like i just love southern california hardcore Mm -hmm. i just love the current seven inch still i would put the current seven inch up there as one of like my top five top three seven inches of all time and wanted to do something that kind of sounded like that 
and uh, it's not too late. Yeah. <laughs> it's never too late for the current. It's never. It's too not late. too late to do that. You can still do that. Yeah. So I recruited Jeffers on drums. Uh, you know, Scott at that point, despair hadn't officially broken up, but they planned to break up. So I was hanging out with Scott and we talked about doing another band together because I originally was thinking maybe I could weasel my way into despair after it was just Matt on guitar because I was close friends with those guys, uh, real close friends with Matt. He designed the union stuff and we were hanging out a lot and loved hanging out with all those guys and union took or despair took union on tour. Um, but then when they decided to call it a bit, call it quits, like, okay, well, that can't happen. And, uh, you know, talked with Scott and had Jay Galvin playing second guitar and had two songs written. And I swear that the lyrics that Scott was singing at a couple of our brand practices that we had, I believe those are the lyrics that became the lyrics to Worthless. Hmm. Because as this was taking place, where I was trying to start this band with Scott on vocals, Jeffers on drums, and Jay Galvin on second guitar, at that point, Scott was kind of flirting with doing a band with Matt, Jesse, and Joe Orlando, and um, Beerwolf was playing with them as well. So that was the initial shell for Buried Alive. So at the same time, Scott's kind of like, like double dating and going to like two different band practices. And I think he was singing the same lyric to both practices. I, I, <laughs> he'd have to confirm that, but, but that was my first attempt for a band after um, union broke up. Um, needless to say, Scott decided to go and join the band with Matt and I'm not sure what happened with Aaron, but but Scott pitched to have me join that band. I don't know if it was Aaron not being able to commit to doing more stuff or if he wasn't interested at that point. But uh, long story short, it became band practices with those four guys. And then I think we had about, I think there were about five or six songs written before I started coming to practice. And this is when, Matt and Scott were living together and working together. Um, Mark, you may remember the house that they lived at over... Uh, in Tonawanda? Yeah. It was actually off Kenmore Avenue. I can't remember the name of the street, but the building's now been, like, destroyed. I remember. Yeah, I remember that place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay. we would just go there and hang out. I mentioned before that I was frugal. Uh, I remember we would just like be hanging out all the time and it's like, oh, let's just like make some spaghetti. And it's like, I was like, okay. Like I bring over like my own food. And it's like, dude, like spaghetti's like a dollar. Like we're just going <laughs> so they used to laugh at me about that. So that was kind of funny, but um, you know, those guys would just like hang out and I was still straight edge at that point And, now they would get a little bit wasted. So sometimes Matt and I didn't get too much practicing done. Other times it was pretty productive. And then we were jamming in Jesse's basement. And then just things kind of connected. And, you know, I was really working on like my double picking because I really wanted to be in despair like six, like a year beforehand. So 
I was able to pick up the songs that had already been written that were fast and had like some intricate ticking patterns and then officially became a member. And then we, you know, wrote the remaining songs that became the album. Cool, cool, cool. I'm trying to wrap my brain around a version of Worthless that sounds like Outspoken. <laughs> I, you know, I'd really, I'd really like to hear that, uh, that band. Like, pardon me, wishes that that band had taken off. Being Stop. like a huge Outspoken fan myself. No, it's not like a diss on Buried Alive or anything. I'm just saying it's like, because I agree that the current is like a top 10 7-inch of all time. And I would, I would love to hear somebody doing that in Buffalo, you know, like. Yeah. I you know, get it. Great. Yeah. I get it. Funny story about the first Buried Alive recording is that our first recording went into Doug. She did four songs. Um, two of them we obviously released on the demo. And, you know, now there's the seven inch, all four songs are out there. So there was a song that we never, that we ended up scrapping before it came time to do any recording with Victory, um, which ironically, we kind of like messed around, like kind of tweaked the riff when it came to writing an intro, like after we got back together. And if you listen to that seven inch, you see that a couple of those lyrics got lifted and got reworked into Poison Seeds, I believe. So a couple of those lyrics actually came from that original demo recording that was called How Much More. It had a little bit more of a, like a noisier, like we would call the, the hourglass part. It had the hourglass like tricord in there. Uh, mm-hmm. That did, I think we played it once. We played that at our, or twice, because we had our opening show at Mercury Theater. And then we played the next day in Canada on Hugh Day Rising. So we played at both of those shows. I don't think it ever got played other than those two shows. But the actual recording of Kill Their Past was the first time we recorded that song, obviously. And the break at the end of the song was supposed to be longer. So what normally happens is you play songs faster. And the vocal break in that song was always supposed to be kill their past. But when we recorded the song, we didn't allot enough time to say kill their past. And that's the reason why the, why the vocal break in that song is just the word kill. Had we recorded it better, history would be totally different and the vocal break would be kill their past. But we recorded it without enough space, so it became kill. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so good <laughs> in hindsight in hindsight you could have just taken a computer and just added a few more spaces of extra seconds but Watchmen just wasn't prepared back then in 1999 or 98 yeah or maybe like Doug just thought it was funny eh, it's just going to be kill <laughs> quick <laughs> yeah this is already sounding this is already sounding mixed this is uh really dialed in guys it's sounding really good already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, this is great quick <laughs> All right. i love dolphins like he always says yeah that sounds like it's in the pocket <laughs> <laughs> i love Doug. i listened to the doug episode just the other day yeah such a nice guy i always forget that he has his like emo like post hardcore band i forget what they're called i've never heard them but i'm dying to hear it macaris pen what's that called 
Macarith pen or something? Macarith pen? Really? I think I would love to hear it because I feel like Doug's a man of my own heart. Just, you know, just loves a lot of facets of music. I mean, the Smiths are my all-time favorite band. The Cure Disintegration is like my top three albums of all time. Like I want a CD of that to go into my casket when I die. So I forget that he loves those type of bands. You know, it was always such a surprise when I heard about that. So speaking of the Smiths, uh, obviously I'm sure you're a solo Morrissey fan as well. How do you rectify fandom in this day and age with the direction Morrissey has gone? Or if you just kind of wash your hands of him, like a lot of people have and Mark leaves the room. Um, (laughs) It's funny that it's taken about 10 to 15 years to find personal examples of this, but a lot of us have heard that term to separate the artist from the art. And I don't necessarily want to use that as a cop-out, but that's ultimately the way that I view it. You know, I view those songs that I love and just mean so much to me that at the time that those are recorded in the late 80s, that I think a lot of his views were different. I know that I'm a different person than I was, you know, 30 years ago. Um, That being said, I think a lot of this stuff has been taken out of context for example, I mean, there's, he's gotten dragged through the mud for saying, you know, I, I think it was something to the effect of the Chinese or subspecies. When the full text of that statement had to do with animal rights and the fact that they eat dogs, and it was something to the effect of them killing dogs to eat them is an example of them acting as a subspecies or something to that effect. I, think I don't want to take it out of actually. context. Yeah, it was subhuman, yeah. Yeah. But so that being said, hairs. like, okay, I recognize good intent in what he was trying to say, but we could all agree that there's definitely a better way to say that because I was there at Coachella when he played and, you know, you could hear him complaining about smelling barbecue and and the way that he is so i think that some of his other views um, about other humans and i think he's very self-centered uh i'm not going to pretend to understand him because anything i've read or books that i've read things that i've read online just confuse me more and more about that guy so I try to separate the art from the artist. I mean, I prefer the Smiths over Morrissey Solo. And the Morrissey Solo stuff that I love is a lot of the stuff that was written by the producers when he or he would just write with anyone that had a pulse. I mean, I like some of the stuff that he wrote with Elaine White and, and Boz. You know, he's had good records. It's just peaks and valleys, man. He's got some solo records that are just amazing. And then he'll have like two or three duds in a row. But like you yeah. are is an amazing record. Amazing record. That's his last record that I really go for all the way through. That's the record that actually made me a Morrissey fan. Because up until then, I was just like, eh, whatever. And then that read something about that record clicked. And then I just went backwards. If, if you hear First of the Gang to Die and your foot's not tapping, there's something broken in you. I don't know that so my good. foot has ever actually tapped to anything. Well, but I get uh, what you're, you're saying. Your foot can tap metaphorically as well, Christopher. <laughs> yeah. 
your mind's foot. <laughs> when that record <laughs> my spine out, happened. When that record came out, I was living in Huntington Beach, California, and he did five nights at the Wiltern in LA. And that venue allowed the first 200 people to go into like the general admission orchestra pit. So I went there very early with a friend of mine. I went and bought a recliner seat from the Rite Aid across the street, sat in this chair for like eight hours, and then went and returned it 30 minutes before the doors opened. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Solid move. <laughs> so how many times have you hugged and or kissed Morrissey over the years? Never. And I don't fully get that. I think the guy's... Uh, you know, I definitely respect his lyrics. He writes amazing lyrics. Uh, they mean a lot to me. I'll, you know, just, ever since I was in high school, I think I think I got some Smith lyrics in my in my senior year book as well. I think I got a mix of like Morrissey lyrics, Worlds Collide, and Iceburn. So random. <laughs> but I, I, I back all mean, of it. Yeah. So yeah, the Smiths are my all-time favorite band always will but um i don't know where i was going with that but but yeah those lyrics are just so meaningful to my life they mean just as much as hardcore lyrics do i mean that's like what shaped me i mean freaking revelation lyrics it's just like that's like the story of my youth one of my favorite stories to tell is how i wrote a letter <laughs> or rather uh Valentine's Day card to my high school girlfriend at the time. I was dating like the best friend of Bob Whiteside. So Bob Whiteside, Tony Bruder, John Salemi, Garrett Klon, Glenn Szymanski, all went to the same high school. And at one point we were all like dating girls in like the same group. So this little click here, we're all in like 11th grade. And I don't know why I thought I could get away with it, but in my, in my girlfriend's valentine's day card i totally write the lyrics to turning point behind this wall thinking <laughs> like, i was like oh yeah those that's what i'm writing for you i wrote this uh, nice. and of course he shares it <laughs> and then bob whiteside blows me up like two days later i was like yeah i, I totally lied i tried to impress you <laughs> I'm that you edited you out. You edited you out. Come on, Bob. <laughs> it worked out okay. It's funny. Considering my 10th grade girlfriend dumped me because all I cared about was face value. And I tried using face value lyrics on her. And then she ended up breaking up with me the day after our like formal winter dance. I gotta know what lyrics, man. Yeah. <laughs> Like Some what, of those face what lines of Tony Erba did you use to woo a 10th grader when you were in high school? <laughs> like, what soothing words of Tony Erba did you throw down on her? I can't remember if it was the lyrics to Open Wound. How or if it was. Or, uh, I, need to, I need to bring up. I need to see what the name of these songs are. Well, I checked that album on iTunes because I was close friends with Urba and I remember going to Cleveland 
and being there for like a Christmas break and sleeping in the face value practice space with him and then going out with the guitar player, downtown Anthony Brown. Yeah. <laughs> Herba's like, hey, give your lyrics to your girlfriend. Give her these songs. Like, she'll totally get all wet once you tell her the lyrics to this song. <laughs> <laughs> Such an Herba thing to say. <laughs> Uh, this oh is my the, god! This is the best and the worst part is he was probably like twenty four at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, this Lord. is definitely my new favorite NCS story right here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. It was uh, emotional addiction. Give your girlfriend the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Emotional addiction. Took it all wet. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So good. That guy was amazing. LOL. Yeah. LOL. 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 <laughs> All right. So everyone's homework after the episode is try the lyrics to emotional addiction and report back with the reaction. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> embarrassing stories I might have to add on to that maybe how I got into hardcore because I remember I got into hardcore through other older guys from my high school so I'm, I went to North Tonawanda High School ironically Jeremy Smith I shared a backyard with Jeremy Smith when he was into like super heavy metal and we used to skateboard around the corner some friends of ours and he and Malachi would just like go down the street listening to like like sacred Reich on a on a boom box on their shoulder so it'd just be like Jeremy and Malachi walking up and down the street like multiple times a day and like these guys like are the guys like got me into hardcore and stuff so I like I was super into a lot of stuff that they were into and got into skateboarding with them. And there was a skateboard contest in North Tonawanda. And what they were playing through this entire skate contest was DRI for the kind. It had just been out for a little while. So I'm guessing this probably would have been like 89. Actually, no, sorry. Cause I started going to show them. So maybe like 88. And I went to the skate contest with my cousin who was younger than me, but his dad, who was my uncle, was like a super hip and super cool uncle. So afterwards, we went to go get like the cassette because we were trying to listen to like, quote, skate rock, you know? So like, all right, what was it that they were playing at the contest? Like we knew like some of the Thrasher skate comps. So we had like a couple of those. I was recording the WBNY hardcore show. And, you know, I had a lot of just, standards I had today weren't on this alone and then I was like oh go to the record store I was like oh this is what they were playing REM yeah I remember it was a a (laughs) three-letter band (laughs) so literally we go to the mall and I buy REM document on cassette we get back and it's like yeah this doesn't sound like what we were hearing at the skate contest (laughs) 
and then I go back to high school a couple of days later. And one year older than me was a guy named Matt Dunmire, who was really influential and uh, got me into a lot of cool stuff. Um, he also worked, or I should say worked, but distributed some of the new age stuff. So that's how I got like Turning Point 12 inch on clear for seven bucks. And this kid had a test press of Chunk Kink and Suck It from Sammy. Like I've held in my hand a test press of the Chunk Kink and Suck It record at my friend Matt's house, which is insane. I'm going to have to, gonna have to ask two. him if he still has it or if he like. Nope, he traded he it has to that. Gabe. Matt Dunmeyer got it from Sammy Siegler. I think he bought it off him for like 50 bucks or so. Because I remember getting Sammy's phone number from Matt Dunmeyer and I bought Project X and New York City Hardcore together seven inch for 50 bucks each off of Sammy. He brought them to a show at River Rock. I show up with a hundred bucks. I walk away with Project X seven inch and New York City Hardcore seven inch and having these older hardcore kids look up to me like, holy shit, like freaking out. And I'm just like, I know I'm like super stoked myself. I can't believe it. I'm like 15 and I got a Project X seven inch and New York City hardcore seven inch because all I cared about spending my bike route money on was hardcore seven inches. So that was amazing. But then I meet my friend Matt back in high school, who's like this formative hardcore dude for me. I see him wearing a DRI shirt. And I was like, oh, that was the tape I was supposed to buy. Not REM, DRI. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, Four of the Kind is my favorite DRI record. Really? Oh, that record's fucking perfect, dude. So good. Dead in a Ditch, Little Girl from Oakland Hills, Stole Dead Cars, and All Our Mom's Pills. Such a great song. Slumlord. I mean, I like it. Don't get me wrong. Like, what's that? That was my first of theirs also. So, like, it's like artificially inflated in my mind. I, I bought that the same day on cassette as I bought Field Day because we were talking about Field Day before we started this. And like that summer, that's all I listened to was four of a kind of Field Day. After, you know... Yeah. Uh, an don't forget the summer. struggle, and we're in this, not in this alone. Yeah, don't forget the struggle was a big one for me. I listened to that repeatedly on my bike route. Um, let's see what else. Um, I remember Killing Time, Brightside. Listen to that all the time. And so I was able to get that from the record store. I mean, I started going to shows at River Rock Cafe in '89. My first show was Sick of It All. Rest in Pieces and Zero Tolerance. So they were selling the Rev 7-inch for three bucks at that show, but Blood, Sweat, and No Tears hadn't been out yet. But they were starting to give out those NFX samplers mm-hmm. that had that had Madball song on there, AF, 24-7 Spies, uh, Killing Time, and Sick It All, obviously. So, I mean, it was just Buffalo was just so lucky to be getting all those shows from Brian Foister. I mean, I listened to Sick of It All all the time. Still, Blood, Sweat, No Tears was like the number one record throughout my high school. Friends of mine would just listen to that and just skate to that. I kind of skipped over the punk rock stuff. I mean, I, I wanted to like the Misfits. It didn't really do that much for me. I appreciate it, but I rarely listen to Misfits. It was Youth of Today, We're Not in This Alone, Sick of It All, No Blood, Sweat, No Tears. 
I mean, all the bands that were on the way it is comp and then where the wild things are comp. I mean, just all those early rev records. So then once the judge seven inch got repressed, I remember getting that over at home of the hits and just being so stoked kicking myself for not saving any of my colored vinyl records because all I wanted was it on CD. So once it came out on CD, I sold all my vinyl. So you don't have that Project X 7-inch anymore, do you? No. Sold that because I could get that on CD. Thanks for lost and found. Lost and found, maybe. That lost and found CD is uh, sped up, though. The Project X lost and found. Yeah, it's it's really about the live set on there, though. So good. Did you sell most of your records, or do you have like a bunch of records still left? No, I sold a lot of my records when I can get that stuff on CD. Uh, I also sold a lot of my stuff just so that I could like get money during the days where I would work the mall like three days a week. I didn't have any use for them. Mm-hmm. I just, I still to this day remember selling my burn seven inch on pink for six dollars to matt pike and he comes over he's like dude what are you doing i just bought this for six dollars <laughs> <laughs> and he never lets me forget it <laughs> what are uh, what are some of the other big sellers that you did and who'd you sell them to because i have some of those regrets myself um like who ended up with the project x and how much did you sell it to him for that I don't know, but I do remember selling a few things to to Gerald. I know I remember Gerald coming over the house when I lived with Daryl Tversky. I think I I think I sold Gerald a couple shirts. I sold I think I sold Gerald one of my outspoken shirts. Um, I, I think I sold a few records to him. Uh, Jay Jensetic, when he was still living in Buffalo, I sold him a few things like Jay used to live down the street from me when I was in North Tonawanda. My family moved around a lot in North Tonawanda. So throughout my whole high school career, I always lived in the city of North Tonawanda, but I lived in like seven different houses because we were always hiding out from bill collectors that my mom owed money to. So I was fortunate to go to the same school, but I was always just living in different areas. So, um, I remember at one point I was down the street from Jay Jansetic. So he, he bought some stuff from me along with Jim Bach. I'm sure you haven't heard the name Jim Bach in a while. Yeah. Just the other day I listened to a podcast with him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny because there was a period of time there where, like, this is going to sound really shitty, it almost felt like there was an unspoken, like, competition just for the fact that those guys were like super like youth crew at that time and doing the bands and i mean yeah granted i was listening to hardcore maybe like like a year like two years before them but that being said they were they had their roots in that type of music before i did because you know i guarantee that jeremy and malachi were listening to like thrash before i was listening to anything heavy so you know everything's relative at the end of the day but yeah there's a little time in hindsight when like some of those other bands were getting started and you know at that point i was already living in the city of buffalo and starting to do some stuff with bands while like 
like Plague of Rage was getting started, it was almost like a different scene back then. And I think you guys can probably attest to that as well, that it was like a different group of people that was at some of those shows in Lockport versus some of the people who might have been at a show in Buffalo or at the scrapyard. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, like, I know, like, for me, like, I wasn't around for the scrapyard because I moved to Illinois. But, like, I missed a lot of those Lockport shows because I lived in Buffalo. I wasn't going to Lockport. You know, I mean, like, even the shows between, like, you know, when Discovery was doing shows and Showplace had different people, you know? Yeah. And that was, like, 95, 96. I could ride my oh. bike to Discovery. I, I wasn't riding it to Showplace. Well, I, I'm not just talking about you, Alex. I'm oh, talking. No, about I know. You. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's you. It's it's you. You are the difference. No, well, North Hanawanda had a huge number of like kids my age around that time that were going to shows. Like, there's there are barely any that are left, but you know, tons and tons of kids when I was in middle school were just like going to anything that they could get to. Yeah. True. So. Mm -hmm. Because then, obviously, Jay moved to Chicago, and, you know, we'd see Jay when we would go to Chicago, whether it was something for victory or just, like, a show and hanging out with Jim Grimes, who would always book our shows, and that was always super awesome. Like, I loved talking core. Like, it was always the best to, like, go to shows in Chicago, and I would definitely, we would always, like, kind of set up operation at Jim Grimes' like, apartment. He lived with Carrie at the time, and you know, we usually be there for a couple of days. So we would like go there after our show the previous night before, and then just like hang out during the day, and then drive in a car to go to the show that we would play at nighttime, and just like talk core all the way there, all the way back. It was always just like so much fun, and you know, in hindsight, I kind of felt bad that I never really talked with Jay that much afterwards. So in social media days, this day and age, it's kind of nice to kind of reconnect because i mean he's super core and very similar to me you know he's branched out but at the same point is still a hardcore kid loves hardcore and he does super cool music and you know so much so many cool people and you know it's kind of nice in this day and age to be old mature and kind of you know move past some of that childish stuff definitely do you have a, a favorite show that you booked from back then I think my favorite show was the Dead Guy Bloodlet show. Just, I mean, it's just an insane show. Lots of people traveled for that. Um, I remember liking Bloodlet a lot at that time. And like that Dead Guy album was just insane. And luckily for them, it was before people kind of got out of Dead, Dead Guy not having Tim Singer as their singer. So everyone is like still insanely stoked to see them. Yeah. Not a lot of the times left being bummed out because Tim Singer wasn't on vocals. <laughs> yeah. But they still had like an insane amount of energy. Because fixation on a coworker might be my top. It's in my top five victory releases. Like it's, it's a flawless record. So good. Changed hardcore. Totally. That record came out and Converge was like, okay, that's what we want to be. <laughs> like I, I basically remember them saying that at another show that I did with them. I mean, I knew some of those guys from Union playing in Boston, and like 
Aaron, who was in Union Suit, lived with them. And, you know, he was a really cool guy. And just like me and Jacob and Union played a couple of shows with Converge, which was nice because they were on Ferret and Union was on Ferret. So that was like kind of cool. But I wasn't really into Converge. And um, I just thought that Dead Guy did that whole sound better than almost anyone. And then it was a shame that he left and then made Kiss It Goodbye this really good band. And then Dead Guy just kind of went downhill, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Such a nosedive. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, I'd say that if not that show, I also enjoyed the New Year's Eve show that I had booked in 1999. Uh, I think Despair headlined that show. Um, I remember that was the flyer that had me in a kid's Hulk costume on it. I took that picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was that at a headquarters Halloween show. <laughs> yeah, that was a great sh- that was a great show as well. Yeah. Uh, I remember and Kindle played and gave everyone lays saying, Congrats, you got laid on New Year's. <laughs> uh, battery, battery played, I think. Did they the guilt yep. play? Yeah. Uh, I think guilt played too, yeah. What's what's guilt yeah. that show? Yeah, I think so. I know Battery played. Yeah. I just remember thinking that every year there was the New Year's Day show in Syracuse. Not yeah. a lot of people traveled for that. So I was like, well, what if we did a New Year's Eve show that people could travel to both shows since they're close enough to be separate shows, but close enough that people would travel to both? Yeah. You know, and just be able to diversify the bill a little bit. And uh, it worked out well. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it wasn't really the same bands either. You know, the Buffalo show and the Syracuse show. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. So that was, it was a good diverse couple of evenings of shows or days of shows. So, yeah. It was kind of weird going to Syracuse Another on one... New Year's Day because it was so early yeah. getting up and driving to Syracuse. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorites stories about booking a show was uh, the mouthpiece show that was supposed to be the Edgefest show with mouthpiece, supposed to be Strife. Yeah. It's supposed to be Strife, Eyelid, Mouthpiece, and Envy. Yeah, I remember. So, obviously, that didn't happen with Strife and Eyelid, but Mouthpiece obviously ended up playing, and Envy played. I remember the PA going out during the mouthpiece set. So Ogle calls Jay Galvin to have another microphone brought over. So Jay Galvin brings over a microphone and I look at it and there's a sticker on it. Or no, he hand wrote with a paint pen, I love drugs. (laughs) (laughs) I give the microphone him from Malfi's, he just looks at me with like the biggest puppy eyes and just like I have to use this microphone <laughs> I'm like it's all we have <laughs> that's a good story <laughs> <laughs> so we sang the second half of the Malfi set with a microphone that says I love drugs <laughs> uh, so Galvin who else played oh, that Galvin. show I can't remember who else played that show 
digression um, from Erie, I think. Digression. Yeah. That sounds that sounds about right. Perhaps, and I want to think Pride opened up. Daybreak. Daybreak played. Yeah, daybreak, daybreak. played. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What a memory. It's <laughs> awesome. I remember. I think two of the eyelid guys still came over to the East Coast for some reason. I, dude, does that make sense? Because I remember, like, they went to Jersey after that or something. It was it's a it's a weird memory or something. I think that they drove still drove to the East Coast or something or something weird like that. But whatever. Yeah. And what's absolutely insane, and Mark, I might have mentioned this to you, mm-hmm. but when I lived in California. Um, Actually, it's towards the later end of my time in California. I actually started a band with Jeff from Game Face, the drummer from Game Face, and Brian, the guitar player from Island. Wow. So we we wanted to they wanted to do a band that was like kind of in the vein of like quicksandish. So like kind of like a 90s style, like quicksandish. And so Jeff was going to be singing. Mm-hmm. and Jeff reached out to me and says, hey, I'm doing this new band. Are you interested? It's going to sound like that, sound like quicksand. And I was like, oh, oh hell yeah. I just, I love everything Jeff does. Yeah. And it's like one of those, one of those people that you love as a musician and just very thankful that, you know, I was able to become friends with him because mm-hmm. I first met him when he did graphic design at Revelation like many years ago when Larry was working there as well. So the first time Buried Alive ever came through California, you know, we went to Revelation Records and I'm super stoked. We're like hanging out at Larry's house and I get to go to, to Revelation and like Jeff's hanging there doing graphic design. And I remember him designing the Where Fear and Weapons Meet album. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, Increasing the size of the guys' heads on their promo photos, like these guys' heads are too small. <laughs> so we ended up, so we ended up talking and and becoming friends. And he's kind of like a shy guy, but we had just like so much stuff in common. Where he liked a lot of like post-hardcore music, and he loved Wilco, and I loved a lot of singer-songwriter type stuff. And mm-hmm. we always stayed in contact. And then when I moved to California, like we hung out a few times and we we started talking about music that band that i mentioned with Vadim at the top of the top of the interview with uh, when we recorded songs and john bunch almost became the singer the original plan was for jeff gameface to be the singer and he liked him but he was he was too busy at the time or at least that's the excuse he gave me i don't know if it was a real excuse or not but that being said I'm good friends with Jeff. And so when we talked about writing music, we did this like, quicksand-esque band. And it was a guy, one of the guys in Eyelid. And ironically, one of the songs that we wrote is a song that was on the Game Face 7-inch that came out for Record Store Day like three years ago. Uh-huh. So, yeah, the song called I Owe You One. That's actually a song. The main riff was from the Isaac guitar player, Brian. And then I wrote the bridge for that song. And then Jeff wrote all the lyrics and he had a melody for that song. So he was kind of playing third guitar, 
practice sometimes and singing. So that was a lot of fun, but that just, that just never developed. Like a lot of bands don't, mm. but yeah, funny story about eyelid and tying back to me. <laughs> so uh, um, I know we got a lot of other stuff we could talk about, but I think we should wrap it up here since we've been going about an hour or so. But um, what? We can keep going. Like, why wrap it up? Uh-huh. Yeah, Mark, what the heck? It's getting late. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what time well, where, where do you want to go, Chris? I don't know. Like, you're the one who's saying there's a lot more we could talk about. Let's talk about it. <laughs> you mean, we could talk about, we could talk about, um, I think about Rap Boy and Andy hanging out at the Buried Alive house every single day where it got to the point that homeless people off to the street started knocking at our door asking for Rap Boy. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's tell the story. <laughs> I feel like you just did. <laughs> yeah, there were some good times that we all lived together on, on Elmwood Avenue. We lived halfway between We Never Close and J.P. Bullfeathers. Mm-hmm. So it was... Um, Matt Roberts, Joe Orlando, Scott Bogle, and myself in a four-bedroom apartment there. I think it's 1086 Elmwood Avenue. So it was a lower apartment. Mm-hmm. And it just became the hangout. So that was a lot of fun. A lot of good times had over there. We did a nice Y2K New Year's Eve party there. That was a lot of fun. I remember getting crowd-ridden down the hallway. And then things got, <laughs> and things got a little out of control there. That was, that was fun times. And then Someone broke into our house while we were out at work one day and someone stole money from Scott Bogle's room. That kind of sucked. That was like the then only thing it. taken? Uh, there was some other stuff taken too. Like there was some stuff like ruffled through in my drawers. I mean, I worked at the mall at that point. So I came home and heard about what happened. That kind of sucked. And uh, But the funny thing was like I was, like saving up all my money to like buy a new guitar. So like a week later I bought a new guitar and Scott's like, did you steal money? Is that how you bought that guitar? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say like, if he's the only one who got money stolen, it's somebody y'all knew who did it. Yeah. (laughs) No. Yeah. (laughs) I like the silence there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there's some good times at that house as well. Having uh, having Scarhead come through Buffalo. I think I think it might even be when they were on tour with Vanilla Ice. Oh, really? They spent the night at our house. I think that's when a relationship with them was forged. And, and I just remember hearing stories the next day, like, oh, yeah, they're doing cocaine off of your toaster. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Robbie, Red Cheeks once, gonna... uh, Robbie Red Cheeks once told me that when he worked at whatever, uh, I forget who it was, like their booker or manager, Scarhead's booker or manager was, every morning they couldn't wait to go to work to, to get, like, to receive the calls of what Scarhead did the night before. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, we did a tour with them, which was pretty interesting. That was BOD headlining, then Scarhead, then Candiria, and we opened up every night. 
So that was a in, very interesting tour. Uh, no one really talked to BOD that much. Um, they weren't really that um, friendly or inviting of a group. But ironically, when we were in California, our band got a flat tire. And Tim was like one of the first guys to come out and help us. And that was like the first time he like talked with us. It was kind of weird. Like, that's amazing that mm-hmm. you knew that we got a flat tire and came out to help us after not talking to us for like two and a half, three weeks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that was a really interesting tour. I mean, I watched Candiria every night. I was just totally in awe of their musicianship mm-hmm. and just such like how a tight band plays every single night i think a lot of us learned a lot from that tour um because our our other full tours we had done we did a full u.s with uh snapcase actually i can't remember if that was full u.s that wasn't full u.s sorry i think that was just like an east coast thing we did snapcase kid dynamite saves the day and us and at that point saves the day second album had I think it came out during the middle of the tour, actually. So we kind of flip-flopped back and forth between who was opening. It was sometimes us, sometimes Saves the Day. Like Saves the Day didn't have like a booking agent, but they were starting to get popular at that point. So about halfway through, like they were like, like starting to like get beer at the shows. But I think we had like a like a twelve pack maybe on like our rider at the shows. And then I was straight edge, but I was the only guy who wasn't. So it was like a 12 pack for like four guys and no one else in any other bands was doing any drinking. So it got really suspicious when the save the day guys were getting drunk and we couldn't find that one 12 pack. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember Vogel giving gets a hard time like, oh yeah, you guys are so wasted off your one beer right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. but that tour was awesome because we were playing a judge cover that tour we were playing every night like in the middle of our set we would do hear me by judge and that was awesome oh my gosh i had so much fun playing that because i said earlier like that's my favorite hardcore on the ball time bringing it down followed by before the dawn turning point that's my number two that being said to play play judge every night was just awesome and it was great to see like ted from saves the day every night would come out and sing along and stage dive because he was a big judge fan and that was a lot of fun for me on that tour being friends with snapcase guys and kid dynamite was great to watch every night i just love lifetime and just felt like kid dynamite was a great like number two to lifetime yeah definitely I think the first time we hung out, like really hung out, we drove to Syracuse to see Lifetime, I think. I think you, me, and Chris Ring drove in your prelude to, to, to Syracuse to see, uh, I don't I think it was Lifetime and someone else. It was like at Westcott Community Center or something, if you remember that at all. I do. Was that the last show that it was Frank Guitar? Was Frank Vicario on guitar? I think so, because he played on our last tour, right? Yep. Yeah, I think I yeah, remember that. Playing in Peach Place. I remember. I don't know who else played that show that, other than Lifetime, but it was cool, I guess. Uh, funny, 
So funny story about that prelude. I that prelude got totaled on the way to a drive to Albany when Union played with Despair. Yeah, I uh, met a girl from Albany at the last show there, and I got like super sick on the way back and like just slept for like twenty eight hours or so, like in the van. That being said, Earth Crisis and One King Down were playing there with BOD like a month later. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go to that show, hang out with that with this girl, it'll be fun. And I leave Buffalo, and it's not snowing. And then by the time I get to Rochester, it starts to snow and my car has no heat. So I totally bring a sleeping bag to wrap around my leg to keep me warm while I'm driving. <laughs> and then by the time I hit Syracuse, it starts to snow. And as I get about 20 minutes outside of Albany, I think I was in Schenectady. I'm only going like 30 miles an hour because it's so bad outside. I end up sliding hitting the guardrail or the median and just like sliding to the side of the road. And I just end up hitchhiking and finally someone takes me to a rest stop. So I call this girl and she comes and picks me up. And when she comes to pick me up, she drives over an Island and destroys the radiator on her car and she gets stranded as well. So I never get to see the earth crisis show. <laughs> and I ended up getting someone else stranded and my car ended up just dying and getting left behind at a, at a garage somewhere in Schenectady. <laughs> totally shitty. Show. Remember what the last show I you mean, booked in Buffalo was? Um, I don't. Sweet dude fest, right? Was that you? Dude, <laughs> was, that, was that you? That actually, that? You, you might be correct, actually, because <laughs> yeah, after I was booking show like hardcore shows, as we know, Chris Ring kind of you know picked up the torch and was doing a lot of the shows, and you know I was really good friends with Chris at that point. Um, I got to tell the quick story of how Chris Ring and I became friends because it's such an amazing story. Chris Ring and I became friends because we were both talking to the same girl. And then I found out that he was talking to this girl and I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. Cause I was just like, it was like a high school girl. I'm just like a kid that all I cared about was music. So long story short, find out that Chris Ring jealous and goes and water balloons this girl. And it made her very upset as it should. And the girl's a friend of mine, so I have a lot of respect for her. Uh, that being said, she gives me Chris Ring's phone number. And thinking I can give Chris Ring a, a hard time. So I call Chris Ring. I was like, you think it's pretty cool to, to water balloon girls as they come out of their house? Because he totally kind of sucker punched her by having someone ring the doorbell, come out. And then as soon as she came out, had like a bunch of people come out and water balloon her which is not cool in hindsight, but being a punk kid, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> and so I say, Chris, do you think it's cool to water balloon a girl? It's like, yeah, I do. I was like, me too. And then we started talking. <laughs> <laughs> we started talking about bands and Matt Roberts because he was playing <laughs> Joe's and we had these mutual friends and we both into a lot of the same music. And then from that day on, Chris Ring has been one of my 
one of my best friends. You know, I'd do anything for him. That he's done a lot of stuff for me, and I have so much respect for him. He's done so much for Buffalo music, and like, like it or not, he's brought some of the best shows to Buffalo. And uh, yeah, definitely got a lot of respect for him. Good friend of mine. But yeah, after he started booking shows for a company called ESI, he brought me in over there. And I booked the Sweet Dude Fest through ESI after he quit and then I quit. So I knew I was going to move to California. And that Sweet Dude Fest was the last show that I booked. It might have even been the last show that Holy Angels ever played. Who played Sweet Dude Fest? I don't. I, I, that sounds familiar, but I don't remember like who played that. Um, so Holy Angels, obviously. Yeah. And then um, I was close friends with the guys in the Clerk Family Singers. Mm-hmm. They became a band called Adelaide, uh, which ironically I moved to California with. They were moving their band to California, mm-hmm. and I was living with two of the guys and. They're talking about moving their band to California and asked me to go with them. And I was like, sure, I, I got nothing keeping me in Buffalo. So that's how I ended up moving to California. I never would have done it if I didn't move with their band. Mm-hmm. So it was me and, and three other guys in their band because their singer ended up bailing in the 25th hour. So only three of the guys in their band moved there. And uh, so that was that. But the other bands I played was... Um, band called wide of the mark it's like a local like pop punk band remember that band and and this day and age that went on to become pretty successful they had a a decent record deal uh jeff martin who played guitar and sang for that band um yeah very talented kid and he totally blossomed in those years and that band was like really good they were really influenced by like death cab and looked up to those McClurk family singer guys. The dude became a really good singer and they were on like, I want to say a large indie label that had ties to a major. Mm-hmm. I just remember that. But I still have, I just I remember have my comb. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I have the comb too. That's the only reason why I know about that show. I don't think I, I, don't, I didn't go to it, but um, that comb I still use. So. Where, where was Sweet Dude Fest? Showplace. Showplace. Was it? Uh-huh. Yeah. The I should have known that Holy Angels was, was destined for failure when at our first, I got arrested at our first show in the basement over in Winspear. Why? Or I think it was Winspear. <laughs> what happened? I just remember the cops getting called for a noise complaint. Yeah. So after we played, I remember going up to Wilson Farms at the corner, and on the way back, I remember being getting passed by police cars. So I was like, oh, those, those guys must be going to the show. It's probably too loud. Mm-hmm. So, and there have been plenty of shows in that basement. So I was mm-hmm. kind of surprised by that. Mm-hmm. So then I'm walking, I walk into the house. I'm like the last person to walk in before the cops come to the door so i go in and whoever was playing after holy angels playing they knock on the door i open the door and they're like do you live here i was like no let me go get the people who who do and i close the door 
on the cop. <laughs> and he did not like that. He opens the door, pushes me down. And I make the mistake of saying, don't push me like I'm some kind of bitch, which I probably shouldn't have said. Then they pick me up and push me into the wall again and push me into the kitchen, put handcuffs on me and take me out of the house and never do anything to stop the show. <laughs> you sacrificed yourself. They got what they came for. <laughs> right. That's a hard so made story, for a man. Good first, it made for a good first show story, but not the best. It's it's kind of impressive to be in a in a room with Mark Bricky and you're the one who gets in trouble for a big mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the name of the episode, Derek. And don't push me because I'm not a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I also remember Holy Angels playing with Every Time I Die as mm-hmm. they were starting to get big and fair over at um, on Pearl Street, Backstage Pub. Yeah. They played Backstage Pub. And I remember Mark making a joke about Penn. I forget what, and I'm, I'm not familiar with the old Every Time I Die catalog. And truth be told, I've told those guys I was never really a fan of their music until recently. I think new Every Time I Die stuff is great, but the Convergy type stuff, I'm not really a big fan of. Um, but there's a song, something about, I guess, I think the lyrics are something to the effect of, I have a really expensive pen. So Mark Bricky pulls out like a pen out of his pocket. Thing. I don't have an expensive pen, but I did get a really good deal on this one. And no one really seemed to get the joke or just thought it was in bad taste, which was so fitting for Mark Bricky and Holy Angels. Like everything we tried to do failed. <laughs> I just remember thinking like, like, oh, like, okay, maybe people will care about this band because Mark was in the Kindles and I wasn't buried alive, even though that was nothing like the type of music that we're doing. Mm-hmm. The band was ex Drago, right? What's up? <laughs> the band was ex Drago, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, we had some people in Buffalo who cared about us, but that was definitely the extent of that. It was. Yeah. I have a friend who's happened. still probably in his top 10 most worn shirts is a Holy Angels shirt. Yes. <laughs> we definitely had the Holy Angels. Academy on, I think it's on Hurdle. It's closed. Definitely now. reaching out to us saying that they were going to sue us. Like, <laughs> don't tell us that you own the trademark to Holy Angels because you don't, because there's a dime a dozen Holy Angels out there. <laughs> Weren't you? I thought you were called Holy Angels Academy and then changed to just Holy Angels. We did, just for the fact of kind of shrinking it down. It was just, it was just too long. Didn't look good on a t shirt, man. <laughs> Fair enough. Perfectly what it's all about. Fair enough. I, I remember in the era of that band, like the first time that I ever really had a conversation with Mark Bricky, he was outside uh, talking loudly about his idea. This is like in the era of like Fast and the Furious being a huge thing. And he was just outside loudly talking about an idea to get a batch of bumper stickers made up that just said too fast by curious to put on any any car that had like aftermarket mods. And uh, he's just like telling anybody who would listen about this brilliant idea that he'd come up with. 
Uh, we had a million great ideas. Unfortunately, <laughs> around that time was around that time is when we had a lot of tour benefit shows taking place. Whether it was It Dies Today, Control, Every Time I Die. I remember there was always a band doing a tour benefit show. So yeah. our million dollar idea was to have a Holy Angels dental benefit show for Mark Ricky and myself because we both have horrible teeth. <laughs> Unfortunately, it never came to fruition and then I had to get my teeth fixed on my own. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good idea. <laughs> nice. I fully support dental benefit shows. Fully support it. <laughs> I don't think... I mean, you guys could have pulled it off. But I don't think too many other people could have. Yeah. So, uh, I really think we should end the interview here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wrap it up, B. I'd like to talk about Holy Angels in the future, though. Maybe get some some other Holy Angels on here and talk about that. Because I, I, I feel like you guys are kind of lost in the uh, in the history of Buffalo in a bit. A bit. But, you know, I... I also, I just, I have one last question yeah. and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. So, uh, you were on pretty significant labels through various bands, you know, Indecision, Equal Vision, Victory, uh, Ferret, uh, kind of like the big labels for different eras. Which Bridge one was nine. the best label to be on? Like, what was the best experience? Bridge Nine, what was the best experience? It's a really good question, actually. It's funny because I never really thought of that until like a month ago. I was joking around with a friend of mine over at Rec Room and someone mentioned Holy Angels to me. And there's actually one of the guys in um, Cute is What We Aim For, Jeff, the guitar player. He asked me about Holy Angels. I was like, you know what? I just realized that was the one band that I thought would do something and never did anything. And I've been very fortunate with all of my other bands to. Like the curse of Mark Ricky. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I've been, I've been very fortunate to always be around better people and being like good bands, you know. But that sounds kind of arrogant. Let me say that again. I've been fortunate to play with people who are better than I am because it's not wasted on me that there are definitely people who are better musicians than me both in and outside of the hardcore scene because I know a lot of people who aren't involved in the hardcore scene who are just amazing guitar players and have never had the ability to put a record out or go on tour, let alone to do like multiple tours or play outside of the U.S. So I'm very fortunate and thankful for all the opportunities that I've ever had. Uh, that being said, I would say that Victory was definitely the best label in my opinion just for the fact that the time that Buried Alive was on Victory was one of the points where Victory was just killing it. I mean, at that point, Victory still had Snapcase, Strife, Earth Crisis, and I just, I love all three of those bands. And um, being on Equal Vision was really nice when the Deer and Departed album came out. Um, when that record came out, we got some pretty good interviews I remember thinking it was a big deal that I was on MTV2 for like our like our lead off single, if you will. And now we were able to make some videos. Like never got to make a real video with Barrett Alive. I mean, we had like some things that were recorded that Victory was sending out. Like there was a live video from Worthless from the 
the Metro in Chicago, a great video, but uh, not a true MTV video, if you will. Uh, but I was able to do that with uh, Equal Vision. We actually had two videos. One video got released for a song called Time Travel, which had backup vocals from Robin from Jim Blossoms. So kind of cool to say that I was in a band that had backup vocals with the guy from the Jim Blossoms, as well as Davey from AFI, which is, which is kind of cool. Um, so yeah, we had some real videos there. So everyone at Equal Vision was awesome. I worked with a uh, bass player from One King Down on a lot of the publicity stuff. So that was a lot of fun because I knew, I knew both of the brothers from One King Down. So it was nice to work with, with Bill on some of that stuff. Um, but victory, as far as like having the clout, if you will, was great. Just everyone was loving victory. Most people bought stuff just because it was on victory. So that was a really great jumpstart for the band. So to be able to start out with a seven inch on victory after only having a demo was pretty crucial to our success. It's funny that the success that we seemed to, the minimal success we did have, uh, kind of started towards the end of the band. It seemed really crazy after not playing shows for so long that, you know, people were still excited to hear Buried Alive. And I attest a lot of that just to Scott keeping bands going with terror and stuff like that. I think a lot of people got into terror and then traced stuff back to Buried Alive. And just a lot of kids discovering those records by going backwards. Same way a lot of kids now start out and discover Gorilla Biscuits and Judge, you know. As Javier would say, like starter pack hardcore. I don't think Buried Alive starter pack hardcore, but you know, for the people who do like Scott Vogel's bands, I think a lot of people do dive into the Buried Alive catalog. And a lot of that was just from being on Victory, getting us started. So that was awesome. How do you think the shows compare now to back then with BA? Are they as good or better? Um, hit or miss. I would say that the more majority of our shows have been better. I think that a lot of the people who like Buried Alive are still coming up and singing along a lot of the younger kids, the people who were there back in the day or the kids who were hanging out in the back of the, the crowd and singing along. I don't see too many of those people up front moshing. So it's definitely crazy to be in my forties and being out there playing some, some of these tunes, but it's just, it's so much fun, man. I really just love it with all my heart. I mean, it was only the second band I ever played in. So some of those shows, especially some of the earlier shows for Buried Alive, it was a little bit of a challenge for me to play some of those songs. I mean, just a lot of the picking patterns themselves, you know, were like hard, but just becoming a more accomplished guitar player over time. It's so much fun now to revisit those songs and play those and just be able to jump around a lot more freely. And I personally have so much more fun playing those shows now than I did back in, you know, 99 or 2000. Cool, cool, cool. Chris, I got to ask, because I can't remember this. I can't remember, Chris, if you are or if you're not a fan of eight of um, Cro-Mag's Harley singing. So are you talking about the current iteration of Cro-Mag's or are you talking about like best wishes? Best wishes? So up to and including near-death experience, there are no bad Chromag records, in my opinion. Thank you. 
So I'm I'm a fan. But and people talk about like, oh, I wonder what it would sound like if JJ sang on Best Wishes. If you get that live record, um, Hard Times in Age of Quarrel, JJ sings all the Best Wishes songs on there. Unlike what was that fucking Chromags record that had like pop punk songs on it? Revenge. Revenge. Yeah, that's just so fucking horrible. That's a thing. Yeah, there's I've never like heard the only <laughs> oh the <laughs> only good songs on it are the White Devil songs. And according nope. to Paris, that was supposed to be a White Devil record on Def Jam because uh, Russell Simmons thought it would be really funny to have a band called White Devil on Def Jam, and then somehow it fell through, and then turned into the fucking Revenge and all that shit. Dude, that's a fucking hard name though. White Devil. You gotta admit that name yeah. is awesome. Yeah. So good. I have a White Devil shirt, but I can never wear it. Not in this day and age. Maybe in ten years it'll be okay. Dude, I'll take best wishes over Age of Quarrel in a heartbeat. Ooh, easy. Easy hot there. Hot take. Hot take. Sizzling I mean, take. No, hot, take. hot take is me taking Alpha Omega over Age of Quarrel, and I back that decision as well. <laughs> so that's just you got, like hit, you got hit maybe... in the head too hard in the pit somewhere. <laughs> maybe we actually are having like a Scooby Doo mask version of Jeffers on right now. <laughs> <laughs> Loving Yo, CDs and preferring best wishes. That that's my life. Oh. I do love CDs. Hey man, Yo, whatever thing- whatever makes you happy. One more thing I got, I got to ask you, Chris, because I sent a message to Mark after I listened to your the Garrett Klon episode. Yeah. I know you talked about how much you love like Blend, but how do we not yeah. catch the fact that half of what Garrett said in his interview was wrong? He oh, yeah, I know. Evergreen and Blend mixed up so many times. That's like the so inside joke between what? Pat Lavin and I right now. That, that's a thing, though, like in these interviews, and I think we're going to change it in the coming year. But, like, my personal feeling is it's not our place to correct someone's memories. But that one probably being the most glaring of just info just wrong. But, like, Mark Belanca's, there were some timeline issues because I had a couple of people hit me up and be like, you know that this didn't happen at this time, right? And I'm like, yeah, but who am I to tell Mark that he's wrong? True. You know, but I think going forward, you might start correcting some memories. Just be like, "Eh, are you sure it happened that way? Maybe, you know. Well, on Turn That a Punk, they do they do like uh, they do an episode about the factual information in their episode, so that might be something worth oh, that talking might be about. Cool, yeah, yeah, because that one definitely like, yeah, I would have to re-listen, but there's so much just all over the place. Like, dude, what are you talking about? Interesting. <laughs> all right, all right, give me your top three records, Chris. Uh God's Hate. Akulu and the Smash and Grab demo were my top three. But I kept it hardcore. Like, we kept it hardcore for that episode. But yeah, that, that's, like that's I what I got. Totally, I feel like I sold out the core with my top three picks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I think it's cool to get some variety in there, man. Yeah. Don't worry I about p- that. I picked Turnstile. That's not a hardcore record. <laughs> yeah. It's a salsa record. No, it's definitely yeah, mine wouldn't would, change if I included other music, so I'm all good. Me as yeah, well. Yeah, it would have been a little different, but somebody described Turnstile as a gateway band, like Rage Against the Machine. 
and nothing rang truer with me that I've heard this week. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely totally. a gateway totally. man. Absolutely. I mean, we'll what are you gonna you gonna what are you gonna find from there? Like three eleven or <laughs> well no, but no, but like people who listen to Rage Against the Machine found inside out and then found rep. So That's people true. who listen to Turnstyle are going to find older Turnstyle are going to find Trapped Under Ice and like things from there. And I personally think that the first two Trapped Under Ice records are fucking awesome. I agree yes, with that. because they are. Yeah. yeah. I, I even like the one that people don't like. The, but what is it called? Heat Wave? Or... Yeah, I don't mind that one. E- easy, easy. I, I think it's past your bedtime. Wow. It is. I crazy. <laughs> I think, I think that one's fine, but like the seven inch in both LPs and the demo for that matter. So awesome. good. Yeah. So good. All right. The only time right, that I've ever liked the dude from Stout in a song. The dude from what? Stout. He does uh, guest vocals on Believe. I think that's the song name. Hey, Chris, did you get the verbal assault reissue for On and Exit? I did, but I don't think it came in the mail yet. Like I think it's one of those things that's delayed. Much like did you did you get your quicksand record yet, Alex? No. Those fucking pricks. Dude, it's freaking crazy. It's in like every store I go in. <laughs> but like they didn't fulfill the the freaking pre-orders. Like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Well, King Obi, you, get a the fuck? Mat. you get a slip mat, so everything just I don't want fine, a fucking right? slip mat. I don't want a I fucking slip mat either. Fuck a slip mat. They took my money. I got fucking sweat mats. They're just sitting here. They're like fucking paper frisbees. <laughs> they took my money in June. That actually happened with me on the the new Descendants album. I know a lot of people hadn't gotten their pre-orders, but on Record Store Day, I totally bought a copy on blue vinyl from Revolver on Hurdle. You didn't stop by to say hello. It's two doors down from me. After all we've been through, like- Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me when you go to Bob and John's La Hacienda because that's like that's the second best pizza in Buffalo. To what? Dude, there's a mom and pop place in Depew of all places called Mia Manja. It's on the corner of Transit near um, Reem, R-E-H-M. It's like a street that I lived on for three months when I first moved back from California. And Oh my gosh, it's the best pizza. I, I totally drive out of my way to get it. It's so good. Check it out. So what, what qualifies as best pizza? Because I personally think the best pizza in Buffalo was, was Wise Guys. I don't know if it's if they still do it the way they used to do it, but I fucking love their pizza. Wise Guys is good. I've had that. Um, I did enjoy the, the, the Nova Pie when I was living in Buffalo. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think just pizza is that great. Um, no. No, it's fine. Yeah, it's just pizza, man. It's just pizza. Just pizza. What about bocce club? Bocce, I do enjoy, but that's bocce. So you know, you know so the rumors, miss but you know that the rumors Agreed. are that bocce, the guy who opened bocce's worked at Lenovo and stole their recipes. Oh, oh yeah. I don't know I mean, if that's true, but that they don't really taste that years. similar. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, just, with just bocce, I think. Bocce might be the platonic ideal of Buffalo pizza if you get a good pie from them, but it's like it, it's maybe 50-50 at best that you're going to get a pie that's to their standard. 
Agreed. I've suffered before. And a lot of the times it's not cooked all the way because they're just trying to like run them through. Yeah. But, but yes, this place on transit, I highly, highly recommend. Okay. So if you, you ever try yeah. Bailey Avenue? No. It's this like absolute fucking shithole, hole in the wall place on Bailey right by the 33. It's cash only, but it's like, dude, their pizza is no joke. It's just so called like, they Bailey Avenue Records pizza over there. <laughs> What's that? They sell like Hulu records over there. Yeah, and big cheese too. And big cheese. <laughs> oh. Anyhow, we got to get Every off. Every single here. was uh, Scott. Thank you for joining us today. It was fun, and uh, we will hope to have you on again in the future. I, I'm sure oh, you'll be on. You. Oh, question we always ask though: Who do you want to see on the podcast that hasn't been on yet? I always said that it should have been Brian Foyster, but that's happened. So I'm going to say Andy Parker from Zero Tolerance. Uh, so I've asked about that, not him specifically, but I've asked about that. And the people uh, have responded with, he will probably never do it. But who knows? They said that about Mark and Garrett, too. Ask Daryl. If anyone's going to be able to make it happen, Daryl Tversky would be the guy to make it happen. All right. Excellent. I don't Excellent. talk to, to know. Yeah. I don't talk to Andy that often or, or come across. I think he's living in, I thought he was living in the New York City area. I don't know if he's moved back, but I know that his brother still lives at the house on, on Auburn because he owns the house, 532 Auburn. That's where I live with those mm-hmm. guys. And I learned a lot from living with him for a little while he's very he's definitely on the quiet side but i mean i mean he was there for like so much cool shit i mean he was definitely booking those shows with Artie, which i didn't understand at the time because he's kind of quiet behind the scenes guy yeah Um, but i think he had a lot to add yeah in our quest Uh, to have every former zt member he's uh he's a big one uh all but one (laughs) well yeah no, it would be a compelling episode, but just maybe not here. <laughs> it would be really about, interesting to be like, hey, we'd like to interview you about this and then just take up two hours of his time just to like tell us funny stories and then not put it out because we don't want to be associated with it. That's <laughs> what Patreon is for. <laughs> Patreon. That would be a Patreon episode. What about Justin from No Joke? Uh I mean, we've kind of thrown it back and forth, but none of us have any way to contact that dude. Like, none of us know him. Um, I think he's in California. Jesse might have a number. That's, if you have any interest, I can, I can dig and see if he has a contact. Yeah, if you for him. can uh, facilitate some movement on that, we totally have him on. Okay. Um, trying to think of who else. Um, another guy named Mike. Oh. How about Bob Brown from Trainwreck? There's been a lot of talk of that, too. Bob Brown, like, lived – his grandpa lived across the street from me. I knew Bob Brown. From, like, that's actually like, the first introduction I ever had to hardcore was his grandparents living across the street from me when I was, like, in fourth grade. And then dude down the street, like, being into Chromex and, like, the bike shop at NT. Like, this is – back when there was that Chrome Edge Judge Chain of Strength show, like that flyer was mm-hmm. up. Like I, 
I remember being around at that time. I can't say I went to shows, but those dudes knew about it and would like talk to me about it. And then I got into the scene like a year or two later. But, but yeah, Bob Brown drove me to my first show at the Heart at River Rock in '89. Nice. Cool. He nice. and Anna Olson. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> thanks, All right dude. Now that's Thank really you. it. All right. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, thanks, yeah, man. thanks man. Bye, man. All right. Talk to you guys later. All right. Later. We'll see you. Bye. Bye.